Welcome back to the More Love podcast with Helen Reynolds. Today, I have the wonderful privilege of speaking with Lorraine Moller, and uh, she has done so much in her life. Let me tell you all about it. Lorraine Moller is a four-time Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist, world track and field finalist, multiple Commonwealth Games track medalist, and winner of 16 major international marathons, including the Boston Marathon. She holds the distinction of being the only woman to have run all of the 20th century Olympic marathons for women. I hope you caught that, all of them, and they're 42 kilometres each. Her career started out in New Zealand as an exceptional 14-year-old middle distance runner, coached by Lydiard Protégé and 1964 Olympic 1500 metre bronze medalist John Davies. Always adhering to the methods of Arthur Lydiard, Lorraine wound up a 28-year stellar career as an undefeated Masters runner at her fourth Olympic Games at the age of 41, having performed with international distinction in events from 400 metres to the 50 kilometres distance. Her wide range of accomplishments earned her the accolade from Sir Peter Snell as New Zealand's greatest women's distance runner. She credits her international longevity, event range, and mostly injury-free career to Lydiard training and her fine coaches, a dogged Viking determination from both her parents and her self-woven philosophical approach to competition, which she describes as an inside-out process. Alongside her running achievements, Lorraine was a forerunner for equality in women's athletics, an activist for professionalism in distance running, and an accomplished writer and keynote speaker. Since retiring from competitive sport in 1996 at the Atlanta Olympics, Lorraine served as vice president of Hearts of Gold, an NGO in Japan and helped establish charity running events in Cambodia, Mongolia, and East Timor. In 2006, she co-founded the Lydiard Foundation, which is dedicated to educating coaches and athletes in the art of endurance training and peaking. Lorraine's autobiography, titled On the Wings of Mercury, was published in 2008 and was launched by New Zealand's Prime Minister, Helen Clark, and became a number two seller on the New Zealand's bestseller list. She currently lives in Boulder, Colorado, and she is here with me, and we can't wait to dive in deep. I just had to say all of that. It's incredible career, Lorraine, and thank you for taking the time to be with us here on the More Love podcast. Thank you very much, Helen. So you've got lots and lots and lots of interesting things to talk about, but I want to start way back when you were a child because you mentioned that you had to become self-reliant and determined and focused at a very young age, having had some childhood hospital experiences. So can we begin there? Well, I think the worst thing as a child is to be uh, separated from your family because that's your whole basis for safety. So I was put in hospital when I was about 18 months old after I'd got a cut in my foot from some glass and uh, they thought there was still glass in my foot and uh, so they performed an operation but uh, I'm not sure what happened. I, uh, 
obviously it was beneath the memory, my conscious memory at that time, though I do have a nice big scar under my big toe on my left foot. So, you know, it was the beginning of something big. And I think the ways that we are scarred early on uh, put us on a particular path through which we have certain experiences and opportunities to learn about ourselves in a particular way. So um, I'm grateful for everything that happened, even though it was harrowing at some time, but uh, it all leads you to uh, the present moment. And uh, I've had a very rich life. So my hospital experiences and being separated from my parents for and my family, my, you know, it's the third of six. So we were a, a big sort of warm sort of you know, active family. And I missed that terribly. And, and I had uh, several times where I was in hospital for like a month at a time. And that's a long time for a little kid. Mm. And, uh, and so I became a very, uh, just had to just get on with it, I suppose. It's sort of like the down underway, just get on with it. Um, so I would entertain myself on my hospital bed. Uh, but there was one time, and I think I was about six years old, and I'd been in hospital for five weeks, and I was... Uh, I had an infection of the uh, bladder and kidneys that was unresponsive and they had kept me there and uh, there was really like nothing they could do for me at that stage. So I was in uh, pretty dire straits. Uh, there was no antibiotic that was working with me, uh, on me. And uh, so... And I do remember a time when I went to the hospital window and I would look out from this high-rise building over this park and it was uh, rolling hills and lots of trees and there was an arboretum, etc. And uh, so that was my connection with the outside world. And I do remember just feeling particularly forlorn and uh, this figure came running up, uh, a woman, and she looked up at me in the window, and uh, she stopped her run to look up at me, and I heard her say, just hang in there, kiddo, it gets really good, and uh, so I always had, like, ambitions to be on stage or um, I wanted to be like an actress or a um, movie star or a, or a radio host or something like that. You know, that was very much uh, what I aspired to in, in those days and times. And that was before TV. So anyway, uh, we'll fast forward on that story because it did get really good. I outgrew the infection. I became a runner in my early teens. I started representing my country by the time I was 16. And then I went on and had an almost 30-year career as an international athlete in an area where women were not considered um, 
you know, really viable when I started is uh, certainly nothing in the vocabulary of a 14-year-old as a professional athlete. So that whole world was uh, pretty much an unknown. Uh, so I was at the forefront of this fabulous movement and sport for women and uh, sort of on the heels of the 60s women's uh, liberation movement and, uh, and going all around the world and just having these fabulous experiences and uh, ended, ended up going to four Olympic Games and uh, finally retired at the age of 41 after my last Olympics. So um, it was it was great fun. It was really great fun. So anyway, the culmination for me, really, or I think the highlight was when I finally medaled in the Olympic Games in 1992 in Barcelona. I was one of the, I was the oldest runner in the field. I was 37. I was supposed to be over the hill, you know, and uh, I think these things, um, the sport itself lends itself to uh, learning about your own belief systems and what you believe is possible and then uh, forging, forging through them if you've got enough sort of uh, drive and uh, courage to, to challenge the, uh, the, the accepted beliefs. But, I mean, they're, they're what you've taken on yourself. And, uh, and so at 37, I won myself a bronze medal. I got to stand on the Olympic podium and... Um, my victory pose and all those kinds of things. It was just wonderful. And, uh, and I left those games with a feeling of I could do anything. I could, if I just put my mind to it, nothing was impossible. And, and that is a beautiful state to um, embody for at least a period of time. But it mm. certainly took me up and much. In, in my faith in myself and, uh, you know, from my early childhood experiences, I, I did not trust my body. And uh, I, because I, I had been so sick and it had um, taken me to hospital and, uh, and there was a certain amount of um, feeling out of control with regards to the body seemed to have a mind of its own. My, my, my heart and mind wanted something else and the, and the body put me in this other position. So I think my life as an athlete was really uh, strengthening that connection between body and mind. And I think that's so important because today I see even more so with all this um, computers and artificial intelligence that we get more and more divorced from the body, not uh, closer to it. And uh, I think it's important for humanity to embody their natural selves and to reclaim our bodies so that there's something other than just a pedestal for an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, because I spent so so many hours running and running is just a wonderful, very grounding thing for me, but also um, a wonderful creative time. Mm. And I think a way of setting everything into uh, coherence. Mm. And because that's what we have, we have these splits in our, uh, you know, we have a particular focus and we're all, you know, governed very much by the left brain and, uh, 
you know, put things in a linear way and uh, we tend to discard information that comes from other sources than the, the linear mind. And when I was out running and the body and mind were just freewheeling and uh, I was just under my own power in a, in a wonderful whole brain uh, endorphin <laughs> type state, mm. uh, it was wonderful and uh, coherent and rhythmical. Yes, yes, and those those are really important words. And I didn't understand it, or I didn't put it in those terms now. But I do when I uh, teach coaches. I I teach coaches on this Lydiard method of training, and I like to stress that, um, or let's say emphasize we shall relax into the notion of the body um the mind and the heart all cooperating together to create something that is absolutely wonderful and uh, gives us i think a straight shot to knowing who we really are and understanding our true essence mm. And sport was a way that taught me that. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, that just to, uh, you know, and the big thing I think was uh, just the movement itself. Just moving for long periods of time. And um, it would take me places other than where my feet were taking me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about those places. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the actual movement of running of uh, where you go left, right, left, right. So it's bilateral. And as you know, the body and the brain have a crossover. Mm -hmm. So the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and right, left, right. And that relationship between right and left is one way that we structure our reality. And uh, as a culture, we tend to uh, lean towards the right side, which is the left side of the brain, which I just alluded to. Um, when you're out running, because you're doing this repeated action, you get into this whole brain state. So you get a coordination of right and left hemispheres. And what happens when we get into that state? We get very creative. We tap into the creative imagination and that's where our real power is. Mm. And when we get into a stress state, we go out of that and we go into another mode. And that's necessary because we need to have mechanisms to keep us safe. If we're safe, it keeps us in the game of life, right? So, you know, you lose your body and you're out. So, um, so we have pretty strong instincts to stay in the game because then you've, you've got a chance in this reality to advance your consciousness in certain ways. And uh, I think... Uh, subconsciously we all know that or maybe uh, superconsciously we all know that uh, so uh, I would go out on these 20 mile runs and uh, you know just lope along and next thing I would, they'd be over and I'd go <laughs> wow that was wonderful <laughs> uh, incredible journey but where my mind went was everywhere you know I'd work things out I would write poetry, I'd write books, <laughs> um, give speeches, 
you know, I'd give my acceptance award for my gold medal, <laughs> all those sorts of things. So, you know, th those are really important because when you do, you're making the action and then what we hold in our mind is then getting married to the action that we're taking. And we need to make sure that, because we often get these twisted um, coupling of an action with an idea. And we must be careful that we keep that uh, pure or, um, or coordinated. So, you know, for example, uh, I had a friend and uh, he used to do hypnosis on me. And I said, oh, why don't you come for a run with me? You know, so he was interested in, he was a professional hypnotist actually. And, um, and uh, he was really interested in helping me get my mind sort of um, sorted. And I said to him, oh, why don't you come with a run with, for a run with me? And he, he came, but he was really sort of reluctant. And then he confessed to me that he didn't know how to run well because when he was a boy, he was running and his father said, you run like a girl. <laughs> and he, you know, and, and in those times that was like an insult. Mm, mm. So, you know, when we um, compare people or we use our words and it invokes a certain image and then that image is laden with that action that they're taking. And, you know, many teachers ruin running for kids because they use it as punishment. So mm. that's a, that's a um, bad coupling right there. So I think it's really important for us to look at, like, where we have conflicts and these conflicts will keep arising because all conflicts want resolution. Mm, mm, mm. And relates. So within us, within our being, it's seeking oneness, it's seeking resolution. Mm, so mm. it will seek opportunities to uh, resolve the conflicts. So if you see something happening in your life over and over and over again, it's time to look at, okay, what beliefs do I hold that are in conflict? and to resolve them. Mm. And, you know, we're told all sorts of things, like we're told we're limited. It's, <laughs> well, all that, you know, um, we define ourselves, we attach to the I am essence, all these other words like I am fat, I am stupid, mm. I am mm. da, 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 da. And every time we do one of those, it's like, a, you know, the iron bar of the jail, we just added another one. Mm. And... You know, so we're also taught we're separate from each other and yes. from our spirit, and that to me is the hugest insult, the hugest uh, uh, punishment of of any kind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, you know, you know, with the the Hartfield coherence studies mm. that they've done, and when somebody is resonating a, a really uh, harmonious heart resonance, then other people will synchronize with that. Mm. And they have done studies and, and it has uh, quite a radius. And so we are affecting everyone around us with what is being emanated from the heart. Mm. and the, the feelings that are generated. So, you know, I always remember the saying where they say, you know, um, you, you might not remember a person's name, 
you will always remember the way they made you feel. Absolutely. And so it's uh, up to us, I think, to, um, we, we've all got our, we're all the keepers of our own heart, mm. in our mind and our body, mm. really. And that's the way it should be. That's our sacred duty here in this life to uh, tend to all those parts of self and to see if we can get them all operating, no matter what the setup has been in our life, but to see if we can get them all operating in a harmonious way. Mm. And often it just starts with uh, accepting yourself mm. and then learning to love it. And uh, that, that was a big part of my journey. So, you know, I'll, I'll just fast forward, Helen, if you don't mind, to this. Um, uh, here I am. I, I've um, been training and I've been winning races and I've been going to Olympics. And here I am at my third Olympics and I finally win my medal. It's not quite the medal I wanted, but it was still I won a medal and it was a real high and being in the stadium and being on the podium and uh, was just incredible. Mm. And uh, so I can, uh, you know, recall those feelings and they're very, very, uh, still very vibrant for me. Uh, fantastic memories. And as I said, I had that feeling that I could do anything. Mm. And it was a great feeling. So, uh, I can remember going back to New Zealand. I was 37 years old. I was a bronze medalist. Um, I was staying in Auckland. And I went for a run around the Auckland Domain, which is uh, it's about a two-mile loop. And uh, as I was running around, I saw uh, coming up the path this big building in front of me. And I had, I, you know, look, I'd run probably hundreds of miles around that park. Uh, but this time I looked up at this building and something caught me. And I stopped. And I looked up and I saw this little face looking at me. And it reminded me of when I was in hospital. And I stopped and I waved. And I, I didn't stop in runs. You know, that's like a big no-no. When you're doing a run, you don't stop. You know, you keep going till you finish. But, but I did. I stopped dead in my tracks and I, and I looked up and I saw this little figure there and I said, hey, you know, it's going to get really good, kiddo. You just hang in there. And I found that to be one of those very haunting moments and then when I went home to my hometown and my mom was there and I said, I, I asked my mom, I said, where was that hospital when I was little? And she said, oh, it's, it's on the Auckland Domain. So, so, uh, so I hadn't ever put the two together before then. I think uh, prior to that, I always felt like I was trying to outrun my past. And uh, then it was a moment of, I feel like uh, uh, this little kid in me and this adult in me having a communication through that uh, particular point in time and space. 
and um, and the, the more I tuned into it, the more I the memory came back from both sides of that window. And I think that uh, that was an important lesson for me because we think of things in linear time and and yet quantum physics would tell us it's all a big occurring now. That all probabilities are present to us. That means there's infinite pathways at any juncture whenever we make a decision that we can um, that we can go down and that adds up to um, infinite numbers of timelines and parallel lives and all those kinds of things which you know if you think about it too much can hurt your head. However uh, I think it is really important that we connect with all those versions of selves and we love them and we give them the best that we've got from our perspective right now. And so that kid, that little girl, benefited from this future self uh, giving her a, a, just some encouragement, you know. So, um, and likewise, I can be grateful to that little kid for, for enduring those experiences that set me up on this path. To have this wonderful life and to learn and grow and uh, and to uh, be able to explore all this uh, wonderful realm and its uh, different parts. So, um, yeah. So she took the heat, which was very brave of her. Yeah. So that time on the on the podium for your bronze medal was, I'm, I may be wrong here, but was that also the time that helped you resolve the long-standing issues you had with your father? Yeah, um, look, my father was a World War II veteran. He had uh, had some harrowing experiences. He went to war when he was 16. So I was just telling the story about my father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyway, uh, look, my father, um, he was uh, a real adventurer. Mm. And he was such an adventurer that when he was 16 and his brothers were going off to war, he didn't want to be left behind. So he scratched his birth certificate so that the 1925 looked like a 1923. And that enabled him to get into the war. And uh, he was only 16 years old, which I, I just cannot imagine um, a 16 year old. <laughs> but anyway, and, and my father, he was in battle and um, he had seen people killed and all the rest and he came back from the war and really had what we would call today uh, PTSD mm -hmm. and so our family um, and my mother said you, you know you always make allowances my mother was just a wonderful uh, she was a mother you know she kept the family together and, uh, and she looked after my dad uh, very much 
um, although at times he was difficult and uh, he was a he was a scrapper he would go up to the bar and get in fights and come home all you know <laughs> bloodied up and I can't, I can't imagine but you know the the wonderful thing was that uh, when I started running when I was a teenager my dad started running with me and I didn't know my dad very well but he he loved the running he became a marathon runner in his own right uh, but he accompanied me on many many miles all I've been terrible sense of direction I mean we often <laughs> got lost and uh, but uh, we became very close there's an understanding I think that you get when you run many 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 miles and I'm sure a lot of uh, heart rate resonance was going on during that time as well as just matching strides and you know in the same rhythm and uh, just not speaking but you know uh, just in your bubble together mm. and uh, and I I came to know my dad and to understand him a lot better and to be able to uh, love him a lot more and, and for him to be able to do that back. And so that was a really wonderful time. Now, my dad died uh, a bit too early, um, but he died out on a run with his running shoes on. So that mm. was the way he wanted to go. So, you know, he always did things on his own terms. And that, I think, was a, a great legacy that he gave to his children. Mm. My mother also very headstrong in her own way. They uh, did not easily bow to other people telling them what they had to do or making rules for their own lives. They were both... Um, very self-reliant and I uh, had a lot of uh, initiative. And do you know what was really beautiful just then, right as you were speaking about the oneness of running with your father and being in sync and rhythm and coherence and how much it was a, a time that you loved sharing with him, it was 11-11. I don't know if you watch numbers, but um, I just happened yes, to look at yes. the time and it was 11-11, very beautiful wonderful yeah yeah so um, I'm feeling a bit of nostalgia now thinking about my dad and uh, yeah but anyway um, so I will tell you what happened after I won the bronze medal because I think that is um, it's a it's a story of when we feel like we can do anything and we can conquer the world. And then it is at that time that you're a, a little bit like Icarus flying too high to the sun, <laughs> that uh, life brings you back down to the mortal realm and <laughs> you go, oh, okay, yeah, I, I, I will be humbled. Uh, so... And, and I did it to myself very much. So, uh, so I won my bronze medal. And then afterwards, I started to think, well, you know, look, let me just backtrack a little bit because in the middle of the race or sometime in the race, in a marathon, it's usually in the later stages of the race because that's when the, the whole energy system dynamics uh, get much more intricate or 
you, if you've done it well, you've balanced things that you can sort of make it through that portal where you don't lose your energy and uh, you can finish well. And I could do that pretty well. But I also knew that there is a that point in the marathon where the doubt set in and uh, there was a part of me, even though I'd won so many big races, the Olympics seemed the be all and end all. So in my mind, it became the supreme test. And uh, so I put a lot more pressure on myself in the Olympics. Well, the big thing about the Olympic marathons is that they are held in the Summer Olympics and usually for prime television. And so it is often summer in a, a big in city somewhere, in this case, Barcelona, in August. And it is extremely hot and humid. And I did go to Barcelona the year before and uh, ran over the course. And I just wanted to check out what it would be like coming uh, into the Olympics the next year and what I did find out that it was very uh, humid and hot to begin with and then the course itself started 26 miles out on the coast and it came into the middle of Barcelona city and uh, headed up towards the Olympic Stadium which was on the top of like a little mountain it was called Montjuic so uh, fairly flat until the last three miles it got steeper and steeper and steeper. So you finished on this uphill. Now there were two things or three things that I really hated in a marathon. And they all started with H. Heat, humidity and hills. <laughs> and I realized, oh dang, you know, the three things that I, that I would rather not have in a marathon are all here at the Olympic marathon. So, um, I'm going to have to uh, either give up or learn to love them. And so that was what I did. And this is where the creative imagination is so handy because your body does not know the difference between a real event and an imagined event. It is responding to the picture that you hold in your mind. Now think yeah. about that. Yeah. That's why they can scare us like hell in the, in the movies. <laughs> and that, you know, yeah. And that's why, you know, we shouldn't watch uh, terrible things before we go to bed because it puts us in a stress state, etc. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so I imagined myself um, running into the Olympic Stadium at the end of every run. So at the beginning of every run, I would dress up and put on extra layers of clothes and I'd run in the heat of the day. And I got used to running in my own self-made environment, which was quite hot and humid. So the body adapts and that's how we train. We train by harnessing the powers of adaptation that we naturally have. And so using that, I got used to uh, running in the heat and humidity. And then there's a big hill right behind my house. So I'd run up that hill 
and I'd imagine that I was running up the Olympic Hill and I'd get to the top and I was running into the stadium and then I would uh, throw my arms in the air as I crossed my imaginary finish line with you know thousands of people standing up and cheering for me and I uh, and I'd go, yes, yes, I just won the Olympics, you know, so I'd go home. Um, so then that pathway becomes uh, strong, but it, it starts to draw in that future timeline where you are Olympic champion or where I was to be Olympic champion. Now, uh, when we switch from who we are or from our present or past self to recreating ourselves in, in the future image of who we wish to be to achieve our dreams. Uh, it takes a remodeling of not only the body but also of the belief structures that you are holding about who you think you are. Mm. So you need to become that which you wish to be. Mm. It, it's uh, sort of a trick, <laughs> so uh, because we have a, a present structure that uh, really needs to be um, uh, dismantled or refurbished as you go, and and that is what you do when you engage the imagination and uh, you do things in a certain way. And, uh, and a lot of it is that human beings are just in, uh, they get captured into bad habits very young mm. and, and habits of thinking. And it's those habitual things that just go round and round in a circle and especially loops that are not satisfying or fulfilling. That's where we have conflicts. And my big thing was, my dad always said, when we were little, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Ooh. And I never quite understood what that meant, but it was sort of like, you're going to have a birthday and you're going to get a cake, but then you don't get to eat it because there's a catch somewhere, you know. <laughs> and, and I know that my dad was trying to just give us a little bolster um, because he knew we would have knocks and uh, to be able to um, have an expectation of of that so that we could weather them better. Uh, you know, that was one of the, your parents try to give you the, the things that work for them and yet the circumstances are different. But anyway, this can't have your cake and eat it too is one of those, you know, where you go, that's, that's a tricky one, right? It doesn't quite make sense. So I was trying to figure it out. But I realized how much I had uh, taken that on. So here I was at the Olympics and I wasn't sure if I could really grasp the top spot. Mm. And I know that in re retrospect, third was as much on that day and that's not to take away anything from the golden silver medalist who were you know they they had their own thing going but um this is uh just uh, uh my story okay mm -hmm. so i can remember in the race and we're about 16 miles and 
I was running down Los Ramblas, which is a very famous street in Barcelona, just a long, slightly downhill, um, you know, goes through the centre of Barcelona. And uh, the pack had broken apart and the lead woman, um, a Russian woman, had taken off and uh, there was a group around me of about four runners, a couple of Japanese um and uh, East German, etc., and and I was sort of uh, making chase, and they they were with me. We were with the little pack chasing the breakaway runner at the front, and and as I'm going down there, and I'm going, this little voice jumps on my shoulder, and uh, and it's this very sort of like the can't have your cake and eat it too brigade except it was definitely female and she was quite uh, a school teacher and uh, uh, and she says Lorraine what do you think you're doing <laughs> oh I'm trying to win the Olympics and uh, and then this little uh, conversation went right through my head and this voice is saying well you know uh, that's sort of like a, a big thing for you. Uh, you, you know, it's it's really really hot, and you know I'd heat trained, and I felt pretty. I actually hadn't given the heat. It was over ninety degrees, which I think you know um, what high thirties. So it was very hot, and uh, and I said, well, you know, actually I don't really feel the heat. It's surprising, but um, I haven't given the heat a thought. And she says, oh, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's um, it's only 16 miles and you've still got 10 miles to go. You know, 10 miles, a lot can happen in 10 miles. Well, I know that. Yeah, well, I know that, you know. But if I don't cover the break of the woman in front, then I'm not going to win the race. And this voice says, oh, yeah, but it all goes uphill now. You finish uphill and you know you're not a good uphill runner. And I go yeah, but if I don't cover it now, I'm not going to win. And by that time, I was in third place. And this voice said to me, well, look, you're already in third. You don't want to blow it. Third is really good for you, you know. Third in the Olympics is, is, is about as good as you're going to get, so don't go blowing it. And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. Oh. And so I slowed down at that point and I stopped giving chase and I stayed in my third place from that point on to the finish and so and I, I after I finish and I, I've got to tell you like it's the most exhilarating thing to come into the Olympic Stadium and have 80,000 people standing and cheering for you and all that it was just such a thrill and um, I will never forget that but in the days afterwards when I had my bronze medal I started to feel like it wasn't quite good enough. And uh, when people would say, oh, can I see your medal? And I'd pull it out and I'd sort of with an apology and I'd go, well, it's only a bronze, you know. <laughs> and so that, that was my story. And I started to think, well, now what will happen if I had another shot at the Olympics? And at that point where this voice jumps in, I'll be ready for it this time. So then I could, you know, go and win my gold medal. 
And everybody had talked about how old I was at 37 years old, winning a, an Olympic medal. And I'm thinking, oh, this is really good because I'll be 41 mm -hmm. in the Olympics and winning a gold medal. So, you know, that seemed like a fantastic challenge to me. So I set about training again for another four years to make the next Olympics in Atlanta. And uh, it was it was a whole different deal. It was like, <laughs> you know, that uh, the opportunities don't just come around again in the same way often. They, they have a whole lot of different nuances because you're a different person and you're projecting a, a different you at that time. Mm. And so come the Olympics in Atlanta and I, I wasn't running that well, but I did uh, qualify and make the Olympic team. And uh, about it's in August, so this is April. I just run the Boston Marathon and made the Olympic team by. Um, and I'll tell you, sheer willpower. It was not that I was um, really clicking with my running. I was really starting to have quite a few sort of breakdown sort of problems and uh, I decided what I needed to do was to go to uh, Greece and I was going to go and uh, find out what it meant to be an Olympian and to make that connection and I thought that would be the extra oomph that I needed to be able to win a gold in these Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. So I should have been training and uh, uh, but I said to my coach I, I'm going um, to Greece don't ask me what I'm doing I'm just going and then I'll knuckle down and I'll train when I get back. So, so then I took off to Greece and I went to all the mystical sites and magical sites and I went to Olympia and uh, you know collected all my uh, my oil from Zeus's Grove and uh, my magic water from the Temple of Delphi and all that kind of stuff. But the highlight of my trip was I decided that I was going to go to Mount Olympus. So if you know your mythology, the Mount Olympus is where all the Greek gods live at the top of the mountain, right? And uh, so you've got your pantheon of, you know, Aphrodite and uh, you know the, the whole bunch of them, um, Apollo, etc. Anyway, I decided I was going to go talk to Zeus because Zeus is the head Olympian and I knew that if you really wanted to get something done you had to go to the head of the corporation you know and bypass all the underlings so, so I decided I was going to the top of Mount Olympus to go talk to Zeus okay so um, it's April end of April um, I've got a rental car I drive up Mount Olympus as far as I can and then uh, you have to park at a trailhead and then uh, take the path up and uh, there was nobody else there because it was still pretty cold and there was still snow on top of the mountain so anyway I in my shorts and got my little backpack and uh, I ran up as far as I could and I got past tree line 
and it was all snowy and there were a few rocks and it was a, it was a lovely day. And I decided this, I picked my spot. I went, okay, it looks like I'm on Zeus's beard. So I'll go stand here and uh, I will go ha have a talk with Zeus. So I picked a rock and I stood on this rock and I put my arms up and I'm going, oh, great and mighty Zeus. Um, and then I went, oh no, that doesn't quite do it. No. So I got down, I took off all my clothes. You know, there's no one else there. So I'm stark naked, I'm in my birthday suit and I, I get up again and then I go, okay. Um, and I say my little speech to Zeus and I've practiced it. I've got a petition that I've written out in my backpack. And um, so I get it out and I say, oh, this goes something like this. Oh, great and mighty Zeus, um, I come to you today. You're the head Olympian and I want to go to the Olympics. And um, I would really like to win the gold. And I'm asking if you can help me to win the gold. And if you will do this for me, I promise that I will conduct myself as an Olympian according to the uh, Olympic code. There is a code of ethics that uh, comes from uh, or is based in ancient Greece, uh, which is uh, basically honor and integrity and courage and honesty and all those uh, sorts of attributes. And uh, and I said, I will be in your service as an Olympian, um, according to this code of conduct for the rest of my days. And uh, then I had a gold medal that I'd made and it had my picture on it. I had the date of the Olympic race. And so I got down off the rock and I buried it. I scooped out the ground and I buried it underneath. And. Uh, and then I, um, I was getting pretty cold, so I put my clothes back on. <laughs> and I started off down the trail and I'd gone maybe a hundred yards or so. And, uh, and I said to myself, uh, I have to know, I, I just, you know, like I started to think, oh, I'm just some idiot up here. You know, when I should be training, here I am on the top of Mount Olympus um, doing this really stupid thing. And uh, so I went back and I went back to the rock and I stood there and I said, please, I need a sign. I have to know. I have to know if you've heard me. And out of this clear blue sky came this roll of thunder. Boom. And I the hair stood up on my arms and I sort of jumped and I went, oh, what was that? And almost like, oh, you didn't hear that. It gave me another one. So there was another roll of thunder, two in a row. And I went, that's it. I had it. That's, I've got it. Thank you. Thank you. I've got my sign. And, uh, it, you know, if you know your mythology, Zeus is the god of the thunderbolt. So I felt like he had spoken to me and he had said, yes, I hear what you're saying and I will, um, I will grant your wish. So I flew down that mountain. I went back to my home here in Boulder and I started training for this Olympic race coming up. 
and I was so darn excited because I had Zeus on my side and I went nobody else has got Zeus on their side so I really got it made here so uh, so my training wasn't going that well and I was actually uh, uh, probably in just a state of uh, adrenal exhaustion and uh, some days I could train okay and other days I would go out the front door and I would start to run and my legs just wouldn't move and I would uh, go around the block and sneak into the back of my house so the neighbors <laughs> wouldn't see me. <laughs> and uh, so I went to Atlanta and uh, I was by far the oldest runner in there. I certainly, there were some fairly high expectations on me because I had won a bronze in the last Olympics and that I would improve on it. And I knew my training wasn't going well, but I was just so convinced that I was going to win. And I didn't know how I was going to win. I stood on the start line there and I thought, well, maybe there'll be a flash flood halfway through and all the runners in front of me will get wiped out and I'll be the first one you're coming in or something like that, you know. Um, you never know. Okay, so the race starts off and it's Atlanta and it's these great big hills, rolling hills, and it's hot, you know, all the same stuff. And I'm in the middle of the pack and we get to halfway. And at halfway, the course looped back on itself. So the runners are going one way, they've made a turnaround and the runners who are heading up to the turnaround can see the runners that are in front of them and you're passing them. Mm -hmm. um, and as I see these runners coming towards me who've already made the turnaround, I realize number one, I'm really way back in the field and I would have to really pull out something to be able to catch them. And I just didn't feel like I had it in me. And I knew that uh, I was not going to win this day. I saw the first runner come by and it was Fatuma Roba, who was an Ethiopian woman. When I started running, Ethiopian women weren't runners. They were third world country. And uh, the when I started running, women didn't even have the marathon in the Olympics. There was this whole evolution of women's running that took part that I got to have a front seat to. And here I am looking at this African woman running and she is striding out and she has a beautiful, fluid, long stride. And I recognize myself as just a teenage girl in this runner, the way that she ran, just completely relaxed and uninhibited. Behind her came the runners that I had had my battle with in Barcelona four years before. And they were just gritting it out like um, knitted brows and just willpower and just pushing them on and I and each one of them when I looked at them I I thought yeah that's me that's me every one of them seemed to be me and it was a, an interesting thing because I had never ever really in a race looked at other runners and admired them or taken pause to uh, give credit to 
how they were and what they were doing. Uh, but I did in that moment. And, you know, I could see that uh, these runners were just gutting it out and they wanted a medal so badly. And knowing that I wasn't going to win one that day, but seeing them in pursuit of it, I suddenly realized, you know, I have one. I have one already. And I haven't appreciated it. I always thought it wasn't good enough. Like I had an Olympic bronze medal and I thought it wasn't good enough. Because there was something in me that felt like third was as good as I was allowed to have, that I couldn't have my cake and eat it too. And with those beliefs, anything that I did was not good enough for me. You know, I had to keep on striving for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that's what we as competitive athletes do. And here I was, 41, still striving and not appreciating all that this body had given me and done for me and taken me places and giving me these amazing, amazing experiences. And I believe that that was my gold right there. It didn't come the way that I thought it was going to be, but it was something that was far more precious than an actual gold medal. Mm. And I knew that this would be my last race. I didn't have to do it anymore. I didn't have to do it anymore. That's, um, and it was, I finished and, and uh, that was the last race. And I retired quite happily from competition to go on to my next part of my life. And that was uh, motherhood. And I became a mother at age 45. And uh, I'm just like so grateful. I have got everything in my life that I have wanted or wished for or dreamed of. So. I hope you don't you expect me to ask a good question after that. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. A beautiful experience. And you saw yourself in so many other people, you know, we are really all just one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yet I think it is, it's okay that we keep forgetting. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, just uh, give yourself reminders now and then, but, um, you know, we're here, I think, for uh, not by mistake. And we are in this game and we are immortal souls mm -hmm. taking on this physical presence to learn about who we really are and that lesson is just what you're teaching Helen that we are love mm. 
Yeah, I always think that the purpose of life is to make love manifest, you know, mm-hmm. to, to show it in physical form because we are that. Um, the broader perspective of us is love. We just um, have the opportunity to express it through our physical experience. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it doesn't really matter. There's a infinite number of ways that we can express it running music poetry literature taking care of others looking after nature creating new things building things uh you know the list is infinite Mm. yes yes and everyone has their own way yes we're all made up differently and we are to live our own life as we become enthused and using the um, word enthused in a way is uh, in through, which is to be in God. Mm. And when we feel that, that excitement, that enthusiasm that comes through us, and you might think of Joseph Campbell talking about follow your bliss, but to follow that and go with it. Mm. And that path will take you, it might not necessarily be, uh, it might be, there will be a struggle because you will be struggling with the old version of self who will happily give way to you, but you have to earn it. And you earn it with courage and courage is of the heart. You know, and the interesting thing that the, the French word cour means heart. And it also, mm-hmm. the word courir means run. Wow. And, and courage is, it's not a difficult thing to do. It's just make a commitment to, you will know when you feel that enthusiasm or that you need to do something and follow that prompting and if you can connect up to that and just go with it no matter what the consequences it is it's a test it's a test and uh every time you do that life gives you more it gives mm. you more and more and more. It's set up that way. And I, I think, you know, even in these times where we are as a whole culture getting tested and it's like, okay, you know, um, reset, time out, reset, mm. everybody. And, uh, and what do you believe in and what are you doing here and what does your life mean? And uh, you're not here by mistake you're not here by mistake you are here because you are a vital part of this whole big play now you can make a difference being a vital part of it by no matter how small that part is by playing it with courage and with heart and with truth and all those olympic ideals you know so mm-hmm. we all have that gold uh, gold is the uh, you know alchemical metal it's the highest and it's for consciousness and uh, we can all get our gold in our own way uh, 
I think what happens is a lot of people, they stray off their path. Mm. And then they keep on uh, going for the cheap shot. Well, and like, we all like to know. And part of being courageous is being comfortable with the unknown. Well, I think that's also uh, trusting that mm. this is set up in our favour. It's not set up to crush mm. us or hurt us or take mm. us down. Mm. It is set up in our favour. Mm. And that's why when we don't follow those impulses, um, the, you know, that enthusiasm, that impulse, uh, impulse might be the wrong word because you could easily get that mixed up with a, a mental impulse, but um, that enthusiasm to, to create or to, to, to follow uh, what it was you came to do. And when we don't do that, it feels so painful when we deny it and resist it. Um, and I think that's a sign that, yes, it is all set up in our favour because when we don't do it, it feels so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. When you don't do it, you die inside a little yes. bit at a time. You know? yes. So, you know, to become more alive is when we fulfil ourselves that what we put out uh, comes back and fulfils us. And uh, so, you know, think of it as life is like a big mirror. And what you put out is reflected back to you. In fact, it is like that, except that there's a time lag. So you put it out and it doesn't come back to you instantly. It's not instant like the Im image in the mirror. There's a time delay. It's sort of like dubbers disease, you know. <laughs> It's so that uh, you don't get all at once how powerful you really are. Because, you know, we're, we're like babies. You've got to kind of like just give you a little bit. And then if you get that, then gives you a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think for those people who have real challenges in their life, it's just that the spirit was like gung-ho and says, I'm going to take on a big one. <laughs> you yes, know so yes. be grateful be grateful for them yeah be grateful for everything that's set up in your life and if you keep doing something that is not fulfilling for you change it because you do have the power to change it mm. your life is yours it's not for somebody else to live your life for you mm. it's for yours but you must claim it and connect to it and trust it and engage with it you know like in your story you know you went and you talked to Zeus you know that's the kind of <laughs> engaging with life that we're you know like right back at the beginning of our conversation and I said you know when we're talking about as kids we're told you know our parents instill beliefs in, in us and and I added in that we're taught that we're separate you know, we're taught not to engage with life in the way that you did to get the message from Zeus and to pull all that incredible story and experience together. You know, we don't often sort of talk uh, with life or with our broader perspective, with, with, with that part of ourselves to, to fully, through that communication, you know, that's the process of communicating and commitment and being courageous and actually quite difficult to talk about but I think you know what I mean <laughs> I do yes 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 mm. so you know so then um, 
if you if you want something if you have a dream like I had this dream of the gold medal and even though now from my perspective I can see what I was really seeking which was a certain amount of uh, wholeness and uh, acceptance self-acceptance and in the in the process of seeking that I had just a wonderful time I had an incredible time you know and that's not to say there weren't times when I was like um, resentful or bitching about it or something you know <laughs> and, and uh, you know um, and it's almost like uh, you're magnetizing yourself and then uh, you have these negative feelings and it goes it pulls you further away from it and then you pull yourself mm. back in and you go mm. through this rhythm until you come to a new belief system about mm. yourself and something I mean ultimately I think you get to the end and you realize you don't even need a belief system you just are yes mm. Uh, but, you know, in the meantime, just have a really good story and, and enjoy the ride. And no matter what, it's always going to change. It goes in waves. And I, I have a lovely young daughter. And, uh, you know, if she gets down, I say, just ride the wave. You know, tomorrow it's going to be different. Mm. It is. You know, so you don't want to get stuck in the troughs. Mm. Well, the troughs and, help us know that the good times are so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're contrasting, uh, you know, contrast is such an important part of, of the physical experience. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're so correct. I, I mean, we, it is a duality. It exists by contrast. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we know uh, the dark by the light, you know, it is, it is how it works. So... Mm. Well, have, is there anything else? How would you like to to leave us? Uh, I feel like we're in the palm of your hand, Lorraine, with your with your story and and this beautiful space that you've put me in, at least. Um, I think just from a a coach perspective and. Uh, what I teach the coaches about training and how we prepare ourselves as athletes to become uh, the best that we can be and to have a peak performance on the day that counts is that what we're doing is we are very uh, deliberately um, providing certain types of stimulation through training to harness the powers of adaptation so that we adapt in a way that we wish to become. Mm -hmm. So we apply a certain type, like we, we maybe do an endurance workout, so then we're better able to, um, you know, go the distance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and you play with all these factors and, uh, it is a way of focusing the mind and the body because that they're not separate. And uh, 
to reinvent yourself into the person that you wish to be. Now, we are constantly losing cells. Every second you lose about uh, 250 million cells, every second. That's heck of a lot, okay? And those cells are being replaced with new ones. And it's the energy or it's actually the, the vibrancy of your emotions and heart that imbue those cells with their vitality. And if you are holding thoughts about who you are that uh, is dreary and drudgy and, and, uh, and you're thinking of yourself as limited and uh, unhappy and depressed, depression is one of the worst things. Um, depression stops people from moving. If you're depressed, go and move. Just go and move. It mm -hmm. will change. We have these natural mechanisms to get us out of these things. But if you can uh, do what makes you happy, that you is fulfilling, and if there is something that you think that you would like to have from the outside world, go give it to the outside world yourself, and it will come back to you because that's the way it works. And not only when we do the training and we put out, uh, we go and do a training session and we use our energy uh, in a certain uh, type of uh, training event. Training is just a simulation to get you ready for the real thing. Uh, and while you are recovering, your body actually is improving. It does not improve while you're doing the workout, the exercise, right? It improves when you stop. Then the body starts to reconstitute itself and it gets itself ready. So if you went out and say you did a 5K run and you'd never done a 5K run, that was a stretch for you. And so you do the 5K run, you, you use your energy doing this 5K run and it feels pretty hard. The moment you stop, your body is reconstituting itself, but the way it's reconstituting itself is in a way that makes you better able to do the 5K run next time. Okay, so it not only replenishes your energy, but nature gives you more than you even asked for. <laughs> so that's the setup. The setup is, it's in our favor, it's for us. It's, it wants us, whatever we move towards, it's going to give it to you. Mm. It's amazing. It is amazing. So, you know, use that system. It's like, you know, you want more love in your life? Go give some love to somebody. You know? It's going to come back to you, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. You want more money? Go give something of value. Okay, uh, it's, it's just that simple. It's like the, the vibration that the thought from the mind combines with the, um, the emotional um, uh, amplitude of the heart. Yes. And, and then you put it into action and boom, that's how the system works. You put it out there, it comes back. You put it out there, it comes back. There's the rhythm. There's the rhythm. That's how we train. 
That's how we make ourselves into champions. That's how we get the gold. We just keep doing it and you make a habit of doing it. Mm. And yay. And there's a new you of your own choosing and your own making to Mm. fulfill you in your dreams and your life. You've been given that system. It is so powerful. Mm. Wow. Okay. So there you go. Well, it's my talk. (laughs) I'm speechless. I loved it. You've given me goosebumps twice. Made me cry. (laughs) (laughs) like a little girl once oh I just I can't um thank you (laughs) thank you so very much my pleasure yeah thank you Helen well that's it for today's episode of the more love podcast I hope that you have been as moved as I have been and uh, we have had the most beautiful uh, golden time with Lorraine she has shared so many, uh, so much wisdom in this time together. So please, if you want to, to see, um, I'll put some YouTube links to some of Lorraine's uh, highlights, career highlights, just to see, to see her running across the finish line with these huge, big, great strides after 42 kilometres. Um, that'll take your breath away as well. Uh, so visit my website, it's livetruetoyou.com and uh, you'll find some, some valuable snippets on social media. The, the handles are at livetruetoyou with heart. And until we share another podcast, thank you for listening. Bye for now.